Hey y'all, today we're going to look into the history of the relationship between McDonald's and black people. Because a lot of things about how black people eat and black health today, whether it's the negatives of food deserts and health disparities, or positives like the trend of a lot of black people going vegan, a lot of what is happening now goes back to early black McDonald's franchise expansions and capitalism. So today I'm talking to Marsha Chatlin, author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, who's a University of Pennsylvania professor, about how black people asked for economic opportunity and for more to be done about inequity in society. And in response, they got McDonald's. And how McDonald's was sometimes seen as an ally, sometimes an enemy, but always an entity that attracted a lot of attention from Black people. Listen, I think that, you know, that issue of, you know, which one do you get? Do you get the access to healthy foods? Do you get the economic opportunity? Can you get both? And what I really wanted to look at is how do we frame this question about food and accessibility in a way that makes sure that we spend some time on history? Because you can read all of the literature that talks about nutritional disparities and obesity rates and diabetes. You can do that. But what you lose in a lot of that analysis is, well, how did that actually happen, right? Like food and food accessibility are not neutral and they're not equal across communities. And so the reason why I wanted to bring McDonald's into the frame is that so much of that discourse is about villainizing fast food, but rarely do we even understand all of the different structural, economic, and political forces that bring fast food into communities. And so I wanted to help people understand that history is a powerful tool in understanding these food justice issues. Yeah. And what's surprising? Well, not surprising, but this is like very recent history. Your whole book is set within like the 20th century. So I guess to get us situated in this history, at first McDonald's was clearly not for Black people. Well, one of the things I think is always interesting in these conversations about food and race is that people presuppose like there's a natural affinity that Black people have towards fast food. And nothing in our marketplace is natural. It all is learned behavior. It's all marketing. And it's all a level of coercion of consumers. And so what I wanted to get at is like, how does a product like fast food, like McDonald's, that really envisions its future in white suburbs and in bedroom communities, how does it get into black neighborhoods? And that is completely facilitated by this moment in 1968 after King's assassination, where people are engaged in, you know, what we call racial reckoning. Now, are people reckoning with anything racial? Absolutely not. But nonetheless, it's this idea that you can interrupt the chaos and the disorder of racial revolt by opening opportunities. And for those of us who can remember 2020, we saw a lot of that. And what we see in 2023 is a lot of pulling away from that. So all of this is to say that 68 was one of those moments uh, in the U.S. and banking and higher education 
in business, you see all of these people saying, okay, we have to do something to extend our hand to Black communities and open opportunity. And for McDonald's, that meant franchising. That meant opening McDonald's stores in predominantly Black neighborhoods and really seeing what the Black consumer market had to offer McDonald's. And it was quite successful. So it's weird to think about a world in which McDonald's wasn't everywhere. But in 1968, it wasn't even the largest burger company. But the inroads that it made into Black communities allowed it to expand and allowed that association with Black people and fast food to flourish. So as you said, McDonald's was started as like suburban. It was supposed to be initially for white people, really. And some of the first McDonald's that catered to Black people were almost an accident. Absolutely. They were in white communities that because of the Great Migration and just demographic shifts stopped being white communities. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the thing. You know, when they sought out to expand McDonald's, they imagined it as a suburban reality. And the McDonald's in cities were often in the places where, you know, white consumers with disposable income were. But what started to happen was, you know, neighborhoods changed and they shifted. And in the late 1960s, there was a lot of pressure to have Black-owned businesses in Black neighborhoods. And we see that same pressure today. And so what McDonald's realized is that some of its franchises in places that were changing racially in terms of demographics, there would be an excellent place to put in Black franchise owners. And so through that network of creating places for Black franchisees to exist, they were able to prove that they could get Black consumers. And it expanded and expanded, and it created the context that we live with today. To give a little more context, that push for more Black business ownership you just mentioned was a shift that kind of happened in the civil rights movement in the 60s from the traditional civil rights movement towards a silver rights movement and a push for Black capitalism. So there had long been this idea that, you know, Black people need to economically, you know, leverage themselves in order to make up for the gap between, you know, what they had access to and what the state was providing. And so Black capitalism is an idea that, you know, had shaped ideology since the 19th century. And we see, you know, different iterations of Black capitalism throughout the 20th century with people like Marcus Garvey. We see it in the Great Migration with people like, you know, Robert Abbott, who are starting Black newspapers so he can sell advertising for Black businesses and so on and so on. But in the 1960s, Black capitalism becomes in many ways perceived as an antidote to some of the disappointments of the 1950s and 60s in terms of civil rights legislation and civil rights victories that weren't real victories, whether it was around school integration, whether it is access to greater jobs, whether it was voting rights. There was a sense that for the civil rights movement to grow up, they had to pivot towards economics. And, you know, I think that this is an understandable position from the vantage point of people who are just exhausted from trying to make change and not seeing it. But I do think that that investment in economics leaves out a lot of people because everyone isn't going to be a millionaire and everyone isn't going to qualify to make a franchise. And it kind of creates a kind of window dressing about progress that because there are more Black millionaires, it doesn't mean that the quality of Black life improves. This 
black capitalism idea is something that even like a white conservative can get behind. Everybody was behind it. Yes. When a white conservative gets behind it, it's a way of like not having to take ownership of the problems that necessitate these solutions. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing deeply structural about the response. It's like, well, some people can have an opportunity and they'll take it. But, you know, to sit in the serious work of racial justice and transformation is something, you know, wildly different. Let's talk about that first, the first Black franchise. It was in Woodlawn, a Black neighborhood of Chicago. It was not long after there were riots in Chicago. The white franchise owners, it was white. It was because the neighborhood of Woodlawn used to be white, but it was, it had become a Black majority neighborhood. The riots after the assassination of Martin Luther King, there was just violence around it. The white franchise owners didn't want it anymore. So the first Black franchise opened. Black-owned franchise. And I think that it's a pattern that we see with a lot of opening of opportunity that when a school is vacated, when a neighborhood is vacated, when whites no longer have an economic or social or political interest in spaces, then the opportunity for Black people to enter or the presence of Black people pushes white people out and they go elsewhere. And so one of the things that I wanted you know, to really capture is the way that economic white flight also shaped the landscape for Black communities in the 50s and 60s. We often think about it in terms of residential patterns and taxes, but we also have to think about the businesses that were established in Black neighborhoods and what happens to that economic opportunity. So nonetheless, you know, these early Black franchise owners, they inherited stores that white owners didn't want. And they were able to create something of value for McDonald's. And, you know, there's these harrowing stories of trying to recruit uh, workers and trying to secure properties and trying to like deal with broken burners. And all of these things were really critical for showing that McDonald's was willing to open the door but the door might be like broken and busted and need a new lock. Yeah, even that first McDonald's, it was opened by Herman Petty. One of the things he had to do with was like gang violence. One of the first things he had to do as he opened was like negotiate with the people in the community. Like this is a black owned store. You got to respect me. Yeah, you know, and I think that's so interesting the way that from the beginning, you are forced to kind of play these multiple roles. I mean, part of my critique of focusing so much on Black-owned businesses is that Black business owners are expected to, you know, wear so many hats, to be a fundraiser, to be a philanthropist, to be a community member, to, you know, support all of these charities. And from the beginning, Black franchise owners had that role in their communities. And, you know, part of what inspired me to write this book is to say, you know, what does it mean when there's complete and total divestment from Black communities and neighborhoods in the 1960s and 70s, and McDonald's appears to be the next best thing? I think I want to go back to what you were saying about how Black business owners and specifically Black franchisees of McDonald's are expected to do so many things it's it's not just about like running a successful business there's like a role in the community that they're expected to hold and one way you show this is that herman petty who opened that first franchise in woodlawn he also started the national black mcdonald's operator association yeah so the national black mcdonald's operators association was a cohort of those first black franchise owners and herman petty was a large part of founding that group and what they found is that no matter how 
financially successful their restaurants were. No matter what they did, they felt very much on the outside of McDonald's corporate and the opportunities to franchisees because it's a system that requires everyone to pay into the system in terms of royalties to McDonald's, but additionally for advertising. But what they felt like they were getting specifically was shut out because they weren't advertising on a lot of black media and they weren't really thinking about black consumers when they were developing their marketing strategies. So the National Black McDonald's Operators Association becomes an advocacy group within the McDonald's structure. And, you know, they have a really delicate position because on one hand, they have to make sure that they can, you know, run a strong business, but they also don't want to agitate McDonald's, which was a very conservative company. And Ray Kroc, who founded the franchise system, was incredibly conservative. But, you know, he could tolerate the black franchise organization because they were making money. And so you see how these men and their role as business owners are always in this really kind of like delicate position of trying to kind of figure out how much they could ask for and how much they had to keep to themselves and really forming a camaraderie around the shared position of being among a handful of black people with this incredible opportunity that still is going to cost them quite a bit. Because McDonald's was what was offered to black people, insisting on systemic change, black people in city after city insisted on McDonald's doing a lot. You have maybe like three chapters on the way people organized around and against McDonald's in their communities. Sometimes it was about this is a white owned franchise in a black neighborhood. Let a black person be the franchisee. Sometimes it was about their neighborliness, their like role in the neighborhood. If they're going to be in a black neighborhood, they need to support other aspects of black life in this neighborhood. So that first thing I mentioned was in on the east side of Cleveland. The second thing was an example of the Black Panther Party in Portland. And then you also have this example in Philadelphia. There was one coming and Black people were like, no, we do not want a McDonald's franchise in our neighborhood. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I wanted to capture is a world in which people aren't sure what they think about McDonald's. And again, from our vantage point today, we can't imagine anyone never having been to a McDonald's or knowing McDonald's is, but In these early days when McDonald's is still expanding its national profile, people had very strong reactions to it as a brand or as an idea. In Chicago, there was an embrace of McDonald's because in many ways it was considered a hometown business. But, you know, in Portland, the Black Panther Party, they're not anti-McDonald's, but they have an expectation that McDonald's will participate in their free breakfast program for children. And when they don't, this causes conflict. There's an expectation in Cleveland that if McDonald's is going to make a lot of money, then they need to have Black franchisees. And in Philadelphia, it's not that people are anti-fast food, but they don't like the concentration of fast food in one area. And so these various arguments against McDonald's are coming from so many different places. But at the end of the day, it's not quite understanding how this entity is going to fit within the context of what you know communities want and what they need. And each of those things ends so wildly different. Cleveland, they do eventually get a Black-owned McDonald's, but it's not owned by the people who actually agitated for it. Nor the people they wanted to. And McDonald's did not want to set that precedent of having the community decide who gets a franchise. Yeah, because that that's what that 
the Battle of East Cleveland was a lot about like community control and who gets mm-hmm. a voice over what we see in the community. It's, exactly. In the end, they did get a Black-owned franchise, but because it wasn't who they actually wanted to own it, it's say that one was a draw. Yeah, yeah. Portland, that one was a lot about, like what you were saying, the role of McDonald's in the community. The Black Panther Party wanted them to support their free breakfast program. Mm -hmm. They wanted them to treat their employees well because they were mostly Black people because it was a Black neighborhood. And that one escalated a lot. There was a bombing. You know, and I think that's I think that's the thing that's hard to remember, just like how unknown this business entity was and just how like, you know, everyone is just trying to figure out like, what do, what does this mean? What is the pressure on community? And people were very invested. Now, you know, whether McDonald's opens or not, no one cares. But back then it meant something because it was such a powerful company And there was also a sense that this might be able to open economic opportunity. It might be a place for jobs. You know, there was was so much hope in it that I think we can't quite wrap our heads around just how much people wanted, wanted this to happen and why they wanted this to happen. Yeah, your book talks about on multiple occasions that there were like grand opening parties when a new black franchise entered a neighborhood. People mm-hmm. were excited because like I like we've been saying, McDonald's was what black people got in response to wanting something to address the fact that society was still so unequal. So because McDonald's was what showed up for black people, black people often had very strong feelings around McDonald's franchises. Exactly. And I think that it also was promoted as such a game changer for communities. You know, the way that it was covered in the black press, the way that civil rights organizations really promoted franchising as this great economic opportunity, the celebrities who promoted McDonald's and other brands and also tried to open their own franchises. You know, people really were hopeful that this business and this business model could do all of these things for people, but they didn't know what was going to happen. And I think that part of what I try to do in the book is be really sympathetic to the like excitement that people felt about it because they didn't know what was around the corner. And I don't think they realized that the wages weren't going to be able to keep up. And I don't think they realized that, you know, they were not going to be able to have an environment that respected the rights of labor. And I don't think that people really were thinking about some of the perhaps health and nutrition implications of it. So, you know, here we are. And I think by understanding this history and understanding the enormous pressures that people were under to accept McDonald's and to see it in that way helps us be more sensitive to some of the messaging around food and around franchising. It is hard to imagine people being excited about, oh my goodness, McDonald's in our neighborhood. But like you said, it was an environment where there was white flight of both white people and white businesses. There just was so Mm -hmm. much divestment when someone was like, yeah, we're going to invest in this community. We're going to give you something. Mm -hmm. That That was something to take note of. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why McDonald's and other fast food are what was offered to Black people was that the government had a lot of business programs Mm -hmm. in their push for Black capitalism. 
But these franchises were so powerful and so big that other types of black businesses that were original concepts didn't prosper the same way. And they couldn't. I mean, I think that there's such myths around all the opportunities through small business financing and minority business programs. And a large part of the late 1960s was investments in black capitalism through the Office of Minority Business Enterprise. But opening a business is really hard. Having a successful business is really difficult. And the resources that were provided by these programs could not undermine the level of, you know, lending discrimination. They could not undermine some of the municipal issues that people face when they were trying to open businesses. And so the vision that the minority business programs would help fund bookstores and laundromats and all of these kind of localized business in Black communities, it was very, very quickly proven that this isn't the model to do this. But if you have the capital of a fast food franchise, and you have the brain power of an entire, you know, corporate mechanism to support your business, and you are doing business with franchises that have the ability to forgive loans and forgive debt and do these things, well, then that's a totally different game. Yes. Now, I want to talk about Chicken George. Okay, yes. And I think that's a good example of it. Yeah, Chicken George was a Baltimore-based business that was quite popular in the DC metro area. And I use Chicken George as an example of why there couldn't be authentically Black-owned businesses in this space that could compete. Because essentially, despite Chicken George's popularity, its ability to expand some of its franchise location, it could not compete with the discounting that, you know, Popeye's and Kentucky Fried Chicken could do. They could not issue the level of coupons and they couldn't do these things in the ways that allowed them to compete in that space. And I use that as an example of, you know, this dream that entrepreneurship is the last bastion of equal opportunity, I showed that it actually wasn't. And when people are concerned about why can't we have Black-owned businesses, well, a lot of businesses, when they're undercapitalized, can't compete. Chicken George actually did cause some franchises of bigger fast food restaurants to close near it. But when you're that big, you could fail and still be okay. Three KFCs closed, but like there's so many left. But when you only have maybe 10 restaurants and you close three of those, that's so much. The stakes are just very different. Absolutely. And you even talk about like there was a way that Chicken George was often considered to have better chicken. (laughs) Yeah. And again, what I found in a lot of these situations, it isn't about the quality of the food, it's about the mechanism around the food. And I think that is what makes it really hard for a lot of you know, businesses to compete, to kind of grow and to scale at the levels where it would have the kind of community impact that people imagine. There's this really interesting part of your book where you talk about this action against the McDonald's company that turned Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson against each other. They were like arguing on opposite sides of the issue. And it was over the relationship between McDonald's corporate and its black Mm -hmm. franchises. 
What happens is in the 1980s, a group of black franchise owners start to say that they are um, victims of racial discrimination within the McDonald's system. And these are allegations that have been made since the late 60s up until, you know, 2021, where black franchise owners essentially say that they are restricted to doing business in very specific neighborhoods, essentially all black neighborhoods. And as a result of that segregation, they can't expand and they can't make as much money as their white counterparts. And these are allegations that have been made for a very long time and have been the basis of several lawsuits that get settled out of court. But at the end of the day, these cases are really fascinating because they demonstrate a few things. One, the ways that major civil rights organizations, and at this point it's NAACP, the Urban League, the National Action Network, which is headed by Al Sharpton, and Operation Push by Jesse Jackson, how they are starting to engage in these corporate agreements and these corporate fair share partnerships that guarantee a certain number of minority-owned businesses will open under the franchise system and that Black banks, Black insurance companies, Black-owned law firms, Black advertising firms will get these lucrative contracts. And the reason why that's important is because the issue of the discrimination never really gets fully resolved and never gets fully acknowledged. And there is a kind of tacit understanding that if you're Black, you're going to do business in a Black neighborhood. And, you know, in the 1980s, McDonald's says, well, isn't that what you want? And they changed their tone on this allegation later. But at the end of the day, you know, what happens is there's a lot of brokering and a lot of exchanges that are made at a very high level. And what I argue is that workers really get left out of it. Black workers and Black managers are kind of left to fend for themselves because there are boycotts, there are threats of selective buying campaigns within the franchises, but there's never a conversation about what workers are going through. And I think that's a real missed civil rights opportunity. Because that's one of the things about opening fast food franchises in Black neighborhoods was like, oh, yay, jobs. But they weren't like living wage jobs. Yeah. And increasingly, they were not living wage jobs. Yeah, they weren't living wage jobs. Hours aren't always regular. It brought wealth to the owners, but not to not to employees. Oh, wait. And the reason why Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson were on opposite sides was because... Al Sharpton was on the side of the McDonald's franchise owners. Was it, or was it Burger King? Wasn't it Burger King? It was Burger King. So they each had, their organizations all had a series of collective agreements in terms of providing consultation and support to these franchise companies in their initiatives with Black consumers. So I believe that Al Sharpton had entered a partnership with Burger King, and then Jesse Jackson was threatening a Burger King boycott. And so this kind of put them on opposite sides of this issue, where they're both saying that they're advocating on behalf of Black franchise owners and employees, but they're doing it from different places. There's a part where Al Sharpton was like, you don't understand the younger generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as the relationship between fast food and Black people changes, initially, McDonald's was not imagined to be for Black people. McDonald's was not keeping Black people in mind in its advertising and its offerings. And then as more open in Black neighborhoods and prosper, there's a shift in how McDonald's advertises and where its philanthropic dollars go. And that starts with the Black franchise owners. You talk about 
Black-owned McDonald's were some of the first people to celebrate MLK Day. It would have been irresponsible of me to write this book and not talk about the cultural work of McDonald's because it is significant. It's part of not just the marketing, but it's part of its cultural impact. And, you know, I talk about the ways that, you know, they advertise on Black radio stations. They use Black celebrities to promote their products. They're sponsoring the MLK holiday and double Dutch leagues and all sorts of cultural work that really does speak to Black America, not just in terms of their interests, but they're also engaging Black organizations in ways that'll create this really intense, you know, partnership. And I think that a lot of these bonds are important. I mean, we can say that they're superficial or that they're cynical. They're just there to sell things, but that's still a very powerful way that people identify with a product. And that's why, you know, when calls for, you know, people to eat more nutritiously or to eat different things, it's hard because they have a different association with the brand that goes beyond food. So McDonald's was given an impossible task to attack a very complex and big problem in America. And it, I mean, it was too big of a problem to expect McDonald's to solve it. And it created new problems of like health and food accessibility and you, you reflect on all of that and like the present moment at the very end of your book. And we're here now. What now? I think at the end of the day, what we really need to do is to imagine a world in which social problems are solved by society rather than always pivoting to this idea of private industry and business will be the place where all of the answers come from. So I think that what needs to happen is a critical conversation about using our public resources for the public good. And once we start to do that, then we do not put people in an uncomfortable position of having to think about opening businesses or being a business owner or being a boss or being a baller as the only mechanism for actually changing inequality and addressing it. Yes. You talk about expecting private business to be the solution. It's like asking capitalism to solve Capitalism, because because mm-hmm. capitalism is a lot of the reason why there's such an equity and why so many people struggle while only a few prosper. And asking private businesses to solve that, that that's not their function in our society. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was nice meeting you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this show with people you know. And all power to all people, y'all. 